0: In 2007, 13 years after the murders, a publisher made a deal with O.J. Simpson to write a book. It was a hypothetical confession to the murders of Ron and Nicole. The book was called If I Did It. Pablo Fenves, who you'll meet in just a bit, was the ghostwriter of this book. Now, most people believe this pseudo confession is, in fact, as close to an actual confession as we'll ever hear. The book has a friend called Charlie who drops by Simpson's house at Rockingham shortly before the murders and accompanies Simpson to Nicole's place. Here's Simpson in an interview talking about the events of June 12, 1994.
1: This is very difficult for me to do this. Very difficult for me because it's hypothetical. This guy, Charlie, shows up, the guy who I'd recently become friends with. I don't know why you had been by Nicole's house, but it told me you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. And I remember thinking, well, whatever's going on over there has got to stop.
0: So this Charlie had been giving Simpson some bad news about Nicole, her partying, the company she was keeping, and got Simpson all riled up.
1: We get in the Bronco and go over. In the hypothetical, I put on <laughs> cap and gloves.
0: Simpson goes on to explain where the knife came from.
1: I always kept a knife a that car for the crazies and stuff because you can't travel with a gun. And I remember Charlie saying, you ain't bringing that. And I didn't, right? But I believe he took it in the book i go to the front and i'm looking to see what's going on and i can see that it appears like nicole had candles all the time and music was on and uh, while i was there a guy shows up
0: presumably this is when ron goldman is coming to drop off the glasses to nicole to help her out
1: nicole had come out and we started having words about who is this guy why is he here what's going on and i think charlie had followed this guy in to make sure it was no problem And he brought the knife. As things got heated, I just remember Nicole fell and hurt herself. And this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed the knife. I do remember that portion, taking the knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember. Except I'm standing there, and there's all kind of blood and stuff around.
0: Nicole fell and hurt herself? He leaves out the part where she stabbed 12 times and nearly decapitated. He mentions that Ron assumed a karate stance, but leaves out stabbing him 22 times. Then laughs while reminding us that this is hypothetical.
1: I hate to say this, but this is hypothetical. Oh, I know we got to back up again. <laughs>
2: This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman.
3: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
0: After the criminal trial, there were a couple of key things that kept this story in the spotlight. One was the If I Did It book. The other was the civil trial where Simpson was sued for the wrongful deaths of Ron and Nicole. Now, we'll tell you more about the book later when Kim talks with writer Pablo Fenves. First, the Goldmans
2: recall their second attempt to get justice for Ron. A year plus later, after we went through the nine months of trial and he was acquitted, you and I have filed a civil suit, a wrongful death suit. Why was that important to you that we file the civil suit? Because nobody knew what that was at that time. I
4: didn't know anything about civil suits. In my mind, it became the opportunity, a second go-round, to get some justice for Ron.
2: The first time for me that it felt really powerful was when it was on the paperwork that it said you were suing him, that it was you versus him.
4: For me, that was powerful. Yeah. It was me against him.
2: Was it important for you to have it on the record that 12 people thought that he was responsible for killing Ron and Abol? Yeah.
4: He was going to be punished in some way. He wasn't punished in any way in the criminal trial. And the civil trial gave us an opportunity to have him, quote unquote, punished. I remember at some point in the process of filing, you were asked if you wanted to attach a dollar amount.
2: We were condemned for doing that. Well, now you're just trying to get after this guy. You just want money.
4: There wasn't any amount of money that was great enough to equal the value of Ron's life. If the punishment in the civil trial had been trillions of dollars, it wouldn't have been equal to what Ron was worth.
2: Our attorneys, Dan beccicelli and his team, had to put on testimony about the value of Ron's life, what he meant to the family. They had to address loss of wages.
4: I remember a particular day, his attorney for the civil trial was a gabinette Baker. He made some comment about Ron, that it was no big deal right. that he was murdered. He was only a waiter.
2: He was just a waiter.
4: <laughs> and I, re- I went, in a brief millisecond, I was nuts. And I said something, because I was sitting right next to Dan, and Dan reached over and kind of tapped the side of my leg and said, don't say anything, I'll take care of it. got up and walked over to Baker's table and reached into his pocket and slammed a bunch of money down on the table and yelled at Baker and said, what's your son worth? And Baker just looked at him and didn't answer and he yelled at him again, what's your son worth? Answer me. He never answered, of course. How dare you say anything about Ron's value? And the look on the judge's face was this small grin. (laughs) You got even with him.
2: In the criminal case, we had no voice. We had no. Authority. We had no I- I- in
4: ability to control anything.
2: anything. The shift for the civil case was we were running the ship. We picked our attorneys. We made it very clear when we what sat we down wanted. with Dan what we wanted, what our expectations were, and what our role was going to be. And he very much embraced yours and my involvement.
4: I remember in our first interview with Dan, there was a connection because he seemed to appreciate and understand where we were coming from and what our need was.
5: Hello.
2: Dan. Hey,
5: Kim. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you, you
2: too. You sounded exactly the same. (laughs) Sound the same.
5: Hair is entirely gray.
2: The civil case is obviously super important to me, and you were the most important part of all of that.
5: You know, this whole experience, Kim, it's etched in my memory. I remember watching the verdict come down and the criminal case and feeling empty in the pit of my stomach that uh, this guy had gotten away with, with murder. I've been practicing law for 40 years and had extraordinary cases, but this was not a case. This was just a change of life for me. And never in a million years... That I imagine within maybe a week, I would be sitting in your living room.
2: I remember I was living at my dad's house in Agora, and we had been interviewing attorneys, some unsavory. And then you walked in, and I remember feeling I immediately liked you.
5: You know, we we all connected, um, and uh, the rest is history, as they say.
2: Will you explain, just in in layman's term, the difference between the civil system and the criminal system?
5: The civil justice system presents a far more pure search for the truth. Because a criminal case is a determination of whether the government can strip someone of their life or liberty by proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and the government has lots of restrictions they can't uh, call the defendant to the witness stand, for example. Right. All of that is different in the civil case where there's a uh, fulsome discovery process designed to get all of the facts and evidence out on the table. And the burden of proof is different where the plaintiff only has to prove a case by a preponderance of evidence, which means it's more likely than not. Right. But beyond that, the plaintiff can call the defendant to the witness stand. Right. The defendant takes a fifth or fails to testify. The defendant loses by default. And one of the big, big questions in our case was whether he was going to show up for his deposition or take a default. If he had taken the default, he would have been found liable for the murders. But, you know, given his ego, his arrogance, and his belief that, you know, he could talk his way out of this, he uh, showed up for the deposition. That turned into 14 days of deposition.
2: Do you remember your first meeting that first day that he came?
5: I do. I do. Yeah, I remember that he extended his hand, and I shook it, and I immediately felt awful about doing it. And I felt like, wow, I just got seduced in that moment. Yeah. Just like all the other people around him. And it was a real uh, object lesson about the need to stand up to him.
2: Did you benefit from seeing what the prosecutors missed in the criminal case?
5: I mean, one of the things that prosecutors did not do a good job of was dig out all of the domestic violence evidence there was. Marsha Clark and Chris Darden, Made a mistake in focusing on domestic violence as a social topic okay. as opposed to telling the story about what happened in this relationship. We found other witnesses, uh, and we found witnesses that they interviewed who they didn't get the full story from, who came forward and testified about Simpson hitting Nicole in different public places. And but more importantly, we developed the whole story about the relationship and how it spiraled in those last months, weeks, and days, and really built that whole timeline out. Because jurors decide cases essentially based on the story of the case. This is really a murder case in a civil courtroom. So let me tell you what happened, ladies and gentlemen, and you start from the beginning and you go to the end. and. It didn't come out that way in the criminal case.
2: We also got the gift of the picture of him wearing the Bruno Mali shoes, and it was in the Buffalo Bills newsletter like eight months prior or something. We had ticket
5: stubs. We had the original negatives. We had... And it, it was, they tried to say the picture was doctor That was even before the days of Photoshop, but those pictures were, were sort of symbolic in many ways of you know, how he had lied his way through this whole ordeal.
2: I remember you put up a, a board.
5: Liar's board. I, I had a, a big, big board where I listed all the lies he had told. I couldn't have listed all of them because it would have taken multiple, multiple courts. So right. I had to do all the big lies. Right. An innocent
6: man would not lie about the murder of the mother of the children. That's the big difference between this trial and the criminal trial. They have O.J. Simpson's own words to compare all of the evidence to. And so Dan Petricelli, in effect, can say, look, Forget about all of the issues that are in controversy. Think about the fact that O.J. Simpson is wearing the same gloves as the killer in a picture a year before the killings. Think about the fact that O.J. Simpson is wearing the same shoes as the killer in a picture a year before the killings. Think about the fact that O.J. Simpson coincidentally cut his finger on the same night at the same time that his wife was killed. Think about the fact that Nicole Brown Simpson put in her safety deposit box pictures of her beaten face with this letter uh, that she had written describing some of the beatings. Think about all of that before you even think about all of the blood evidence in the Bronco at his home, at the crime scene. It's a very powerful argument for the plaintiffs to make.
2: have fallen in love with this cool new game called Best Fiends. It's a five-star rated mobile puzzle game, and I have worked my way up. It's been about a week since I've checked in with you, and you'll never guess. I am already up to level 107. I know. It's crazy. I can do it, though. I'm going to keep going. It's this really fun game where all these cute little characters and bright lights and these fun puzzles. It gives me just tons of game time, and I can just sit and play with it when I'm waiting for my kid. Or if I just need to, like, shut out the world, I can just focus on all these puzzles. It's super casual. I can play by myself or even with my kid. Okay, so here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to download the free five-star rated mobile puzzle game on the Apple App Store or in Google Play. If you just search for Best Fiends, that's friends without the R, and you too can solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. So again, go to the Apple App Store or Google Play and search for Best Fiends, that's friends without the R. This episode
7: is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are
2: sold. Something that has always bothered me is that people say that because the preponderance of the evidence is different, people have accused us of like, well, it's it's just civil. Who cares? You know, you didn't have to prove as much. People don't want to accept the verdict that we got in the civil case because they think it's less than. And I think I've always taken issue with that.
5: Oh, that's just ignorance, the sheer ignorance, because the civil case actually establishes the real facts of the case and it was far more comprehensive and far more uh, dramatic and uh, more importantly this was the victim's family's case right they were the plaintiffs not the state of california not Marsha clark and chris darden and all those people who became more important um, than the actual victims your dad testified Nicole's mom testified, and your dad's testimony for me was by far the most powerful part of the trial. Yeah. And uh, asked him, you know, about how much he missed Ron and loved him, and he started crying, and I started crying, and the jury started crying. Then the other thing I pointed out is Simpson was attacking Ron. I I argued to the jury uh, that that was perhaps the most powerful evidence of simpson's guilt because ron uh was trying to save nicole's life right so ron died trying to save her the wife of you know ex-wife of oj the mother of his children he should be eternally grateful he could never act truly innocent everything he did projected his guilt It was an extraordinary experience because while you guys were in the same courtroom in the criminal case, you were with marshals. Right. He was incarcerated, but now he was free and you guys were going to be in the same courtroom together.
2: We had an incident inside the courtroom. I don't know if you remember. At the end of the court day, I was watching him walk out, and then he was staring back at me. And the killer's like, "She's looking at me. She's staring at me." And then my dad turned around and thought that the killer was giving my dad dirty looks. And so that my dad started screaming. Do you remember this? I think he,
5: I think he wanted to no party your dad. I'll tell you. You know, it's hard for people to understand the raw. And intense emotions. To be in the same room, to be, like, eating the same food, Yeah. it was unthinkable, right?
2: Yeah. We had to make sure we were, you know, we weren't coming in and out of the door together, like, that the hallways were clear.
5: And, you know, one time your dad and I ended up in the restroom with them. There was only one men's room around the corner from the courtroom, and we would try to obviously use it when he was not and vice versa and then one time we didn't think he was in there we went in there and there he was and you know he tried to like smirk at us and we just turned around and walked out I had to push your dad out of there fast before he said something.
2: In hindsight I mean you were saddled with not only finding justice for our family but I think for the country. I think there were people that were so you know, disenfranchised with our legal system and so just disappointed that I think this case stood for so much more than just about getting justice for Ron and Nicole. And did you ever feel burdened by that or settled by that?
5: Are you kidding me? Absolutely. You know, I had the whole country riding on our winning this case.
2: Come verdict day, do you remember thinking one way or the other that when we went into that courthouse, what you thought they were going to be delivering?
5: Uh, I was so nervous about losing the fear of letting you down, letting your family down, letting everybody down. I was over overwhelmed with fear. I had no rational reason to think we had lost none. But until... Those words were uttered. I remember just putting my head down and almost crying and your dad was you were right behind me. and yeah. I think both of you started crying. all those years of emotion just released in one moment.
2: I know that the civil case represented so much to our family, but I also know from so many people it became a pathway for other victims and survivors and their families to be able to seek justice. I think you deserve a lot of credit for you taking this case. Thank you. I love you. And uh, thank you for being such an advocate um, for my brother and for my dad and I um, and our family. Um, Thank you very much.
5: It was certainly a life-changing experience for me. Thank you.
0: Kim, I wanted to ask you about Simpson's behavior in the courtroom. I mean, Dan talked about not having Simpson leaving and going back to a cell. I mean, he just went home.
2: He's walking around. Everybody's in the same space. What was he like? He, for the days that he was there, because he didn't always come, he was like the mayor of the courtroom trying to ingratiate himself to the— reporters and the people that were in the room. But it wasn't until usually the end of the day's testimony that he and I would connect. Uh, I would do the same thing I did in the criminal case, which is just stare at him as he would walk out. And we locked eyes one time and it erupted. Well, how are people treating Simpson outside the courtroom? I heard people booing and screaming at him, um, but there weren't hordes of people at the trial every day like there was of the criminal case. There was one guy that used to stand out there and just scream, murder, murder every single day and taunt him. It was sort of awesome. But weren't there also people who showed up and wanted his autograph? In the hotel, there would be people that would stand around the lobby and when they'd see him, they'd ask for his autograph and take pictures. And then outside the courtroom, yes, it just wasn't throngs of people, but the people that were there were absolutely enamored with him for sure. How was he on the stand? nervous. Um, I think he started out a little cocky. And then um, when Dan petrucelli started to question him, he started to get nervous because he was caught in all of his lies and he wasn't able to get away with his normal BS that he could when he wasn't being challenged. He sort of started to shrivel under pressure.
0: All right. Let's talk about Pablo, the author. <laughs> yes. The
2: ghostwriter for If I Did It. Why
0: is he in this episode?
2: Pablo was an interesting character. He was one of the key witnesses in the criminal case because he established a timeline. But Pablo became more relevant to our family later on in the around 2007 because he was the ghostwriter for the If I Did It book, which is important to the civil judgment that we were awarded through Dan Petricelli's efforts. And all these years later, our lives would be entwined once again. Hello. Hey, Pablo. Um, thanks for giving me your time today.
8: I'm here to answer your questions.
2: So can you remind people how you became involved with me and my family? Well,
8: I lived on the Gretna Greenway, which was, you know, very near the site of the murders. And on the night of the murders, I I heard a dog's wailing. And at the time I was married and I was going to go out to investigate, but my wife decided she didn't want to be alone in the house. So I I didn't go. And the next morning, detectives came around asking questions and they asked me if I had heard anything. I said, yes, I, I heard a dog. And I pinpointed more or less the time that I had heard the dog. Yeah. So I ended up testifying at the trial for the prosecution.
0: During the trial, Pablo Finbez testified that he heard a dog's plaintiff wail between 10.15 and 10.20 p.m. on the night of the murders. Was there something unusual about that dog barking that drew your attention to it?
8: Uh, It was a, you know, it was fairly persistent. It was at a significant pitch, and uh, as you may recall, I described it at the time as a plaintiff wail. Sounded like a, you know, very unhappy animal.
0: That phrase plaintive wail became well-known. Prosecutors believed the barking and howling came from Nicole Akita Cato, who left bloody paw prints near the bodies. The timeline established by Pablo Fenvez became crucial. The dog's wail indicated that he found the bodies before anyone else.
8: I established a timeline that made it very easy for O.J. Simpson to have committed the murders.
2: So how did testifying affect your life?
8: You know, I'm in the film business and and I'd go to have meetings with people and they wanted to spend the first 20 minutes talking about O.J. Simpson. Yeah. So it got a little bit tiresome, but I understood, you know, why they were interested and we just, we'd get through that and then get to the business.
2: So how did the writing of the book come about?
8: Uh, You know, I was a journalist for many years and then I came to Hollywood and I've written a lot of movies. As a sideline, I also ghostwrite books for people i got a call one day from judith Regan, a publisher i've worked with in the past and she said look i have this project i want to talk to you about it this was you know 10 12 years after the murders and uh, i said you know this is crazy i testified against oj in the trial and uh, this is kind of nuts and she said no you're the only guy i trust to do this and i said that i didn't feel comfortable making a deal with oj simpson She said, don't worry. I don't feel comfortable doing that either. And in fact, we're making a deal with his children. Okay, I can live with that. You know, this guy has pretty much ruined the lives of his children. Maybe they should make a little money to help pay for college or whatever. And so I worked on the book. But the goal was that in the course of the interviews with O.J., maybe we could get him to come clean. Yeah. You know, it was a real long shot. But you never know, weirder things would have happened. And even if he didn't come clean, it would be an interesting book. And ultimately I said, look, you know, I'm a journalist and the fact that I'm being given a chance to sit in a room with a man who I know killed two people is kind of fascinating. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know of too many journalists that would have turned that down.
2: So the first day you met him, what happened?
8: i got to the hotel and he had a couple of handlers there and they said he's on his way and and i was upstairs in the suite that had been rented for us to do the interviews and he you know he was delayed and an hour went by and then he called one of the handlers and said listen can we just meet downstairs in the restaurant he was nervous about meeting me
2: yes yeah.
8: because he knew we had some tough days ahead of us and he showed up and he walked over and i did shake his hand and and we sat down, and one of the first things he said is, "What? what is this bullshit about a dog putting away a man for murder? Yeah he remembered that I had testified against him. And I didn't even answer. You know, we ordered something to eat and we ate and then we went up to the hotel suite to start the conversation. And there were a few bumps in the road. He was very nervous. He, at one point he was, said, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I want to talk about this. And so I said, fine, And one of them, you know, no problem. I'll get on a plane and go home. And then the lawyers came in and talked to him.
2: Was he trying to back out of it, do you think?
8: I don't know if he was trying to back out. He was just nervous, and I understood that. And I tried to make him comfortable and I and I said, "Look, we're just let's ease our way into it." And you know, frankly, it was very hard for both of us. It was uh it was a very emotional thing. So, for me to see how deeply he was affected by discussing even the you know, there was a lot of details he didn't want to get into. And there's one point in the in the chapter where he says, "I'm not going there." You know, I, I I can't go there. I blacked out. I don't remember anything.
2: Do you still have the tape recordings of these interviews?
8: No, you know, I had to. I, part of the deal was that they they didn't they didn't belong to me. So this lawyer came by to my my house and and took them and literally destroyed them in my
2: kitchen. <gasps> oh my gosh. Okay.
8: But yeah, it was it was so tough for him that it. I never doubted that he was guilty, but to me that was just such a such a visceral confirmation of his guilt.
2: So he's starting off telling you that this is his fictional account, but you just said that you know he's guilty. So how do you how do you walk those two paths while writing the book then?
8: I don't know that there are two paths there. I, you know, I went in to do my job and to, to write his fictional account of that night. So I never betrayed him and I did exactly what I told him I was going to do. Yeah. And frankly, one of the things that I found fascinating in the course of my interviews with O.J. was his complete (laughs) lack of awareness of like how horribly he made himself sound. By trying to defend himself and by constantly blaming Nicole. And to me, that was very valuable because you know, anybody reading the book will go, God, this, this guy's completely
0: insane. This is an excerpt from the book, If I Did It.
9: I figured Sydney and Justin would be in bed by then, over at the Bundy condo, fast asleep. I hope so anyway. I wondered what their mother was doing at the moment. I fell back to the night I surprised her at the Gretna Greenhouse going at it on the couch with our friend Keith. In the glow of two dozen candles while the kids were in the house, it made my stomach lurch.
0: In the book, one of the hypotheticals is that Simpson has an accomplice who he calls Charlie. Now, this figment of Simpson's imagination riles him up by reporting on Nicole and her recent trip to Cabo. It's enough to send Simpson into a rage, and we all know where it goes from there.
9: I slipped past the gate, into the narrow courtyard, and moved toward the front door. And right away, I noticed lights flickering in the windows. I moved past the front door to take a closer look. There were candles burning inside, and I could hear faint music playing. It was obvious that Nicole was expecting company. I wondered who the fuck it was this time. Just as I was beginning to get seriously steamed, the back gate squeaked open. A guy came walking through like he owned the fucking place. He saw me and froze. He was young and good looking, with a thick head of black hair. And I tried to place him, but I'd never seen him before. I didn't even know his name. Ron Goldman. Who the fuck are you? I said. I uh, I just came by to return a pair of glasses.
8: You know, he said I didn't do this alone. I said, well, what happened? Did somebody come to see you? He said, yeah, maybe. And he was being very coy. And then he then he started. You know, I had to sort of pull the story out of him. To me, that's a figment of his imagination.
2: I started to think it was some kind of, like, alter ego or his subconscious or something.
8: That's absolutely right. He needed needed somebody to blame.
9: Suddenly the front door opened. Nicole came outside. She was wearing a slinky little cocktail dress, black with probably nothing much underneath. Her mouth fell open in shock. She looked at me, and she looked at Goldman, and she looked at Charlie just beyond. Goldman was pretty well trapped. Charlie stood between him and the rear gate and I was barring his way to the front. OJ, what the fuck is going on? I turned to look at Nicole. That's what I wanna know, I said. I looked at Goldman, steamed, and Charlie moved closer, the knife still in his hand. I think he sensed that things were about to get out of control because I was very close to losing it. I'm listening, motherfucker, I said to Goldman. OJ, Nicole hollered. Leave him the fuck alone. What are you doing here anyway? I thought you were in Chicago. Fuck you, I said. Hey, man, Goldman said, that's not necessary. No, fuck you. I gave you everything you could ask for and you fucked it all up. She came at me like a banshee, all arms and legs flailing. And I ducked and she lost her balance and fell against the stoop. She fell hard on her right side. I could hear the back of her head hitting the ground and she lay there for a moment, not moving.
8: I remember, you know, him talking about your your brother getting into a a defensive stance,
9: which
2: I
8: hadn't heard before.
2: So, this is where I get confused because I've heard this story before. People think my brother was a black belt in karate and that he took a karate stance to defend himself, but my brother didn't know karate, so that just doesn't make any sense to me.
8: Here's my interpretation that, you know, and I'm sorry, I know I'm talking about your brother. I'm sure he tried to defend himself, so it's O.J. saying he got into a karate stance. For all we know, your brother just, you know, put his fists up like a boxer or somebody getting into a barroom fight.
2: Right. And then he says he was laughing at my brother.
8: Yeah, he he basically, you know, like, yeah, you're going to take me on. That was kind of the feeling that uh, uh,
9: you you can't take me. You know, the guy's huge. I looked over at Goldman. I was fuming. I guess he thought I was going to hit him. Charlie walked over and planted himself in front of me, blocking my view. We are fucking done here, man. Let's go. I noticed the knife in Charlie's hand. And in one deft move, I removed my right glove and snatched it up. We're not going anywhere, I said, turning to face Goldman. Goldman was still circling me, bobbing and weaving. You think you tough, motherfucker, I said. Okay, motherfucker, I said. Show me how tough you are. Then something went horribly wrong. And I know what happened. But I can't tell you exactly how.
2: He puts himself there, covered in blood, with a knife in his hand.
9: Now, I was standing in Nicole's courtyard, in the dark, listening to the loud, rhythmic, accelerating beating of my own heart. I put my left hand over my heart, and my shirt felt strangely wet. I looked down at myself. For several moments, I couldn't get my mind around what I was seeing. The whole front of me was covered in blood, but it didn't compute. Is this really blood? I wondered. And whose blood is it? Is it mine? Am I hurt? I was more confused than ever. What the hell had happened here? Then I remembered that Goldman guy coming through the back gate with Judy's glasses, and I remembered hollering at him, and I remembered how our shouts had brought Nicole to the door. I looked down and saw her on the ground in front of me, curled up in a fetal position at the base of the stairs, not moving. Goldman was only a few feet away, slumped against the bars of the fence. He wasn't moving either. Both he and Nicole were lying in giant pools of blood.
8: At the end of the day, I look at that book and there's enough details in there that convince me it's a confession as to his guilt. You don't have to convince me. I, I always felt he was guilty, and I told him to his face that I felt he was guilty.
2: Uh, how did he respond when you told him that?
8: He, we'd been working for a while, so he turned to me one day and said, so after all this time, now that you get to know me, because, you know, he wanted to be liked by me. Look, I, I hate to say this, but he's a he's a very charismatic yeah. guy. Uh, he says, do you still think I did it? And I took a beat, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I thought you did it when I... Came down here, flew down here, and I, and I still think you did it. And he exploded. He cursed and called me names and stuff. And then he started laughing <gasps> like it was a big joke. I didn't do it because I'm some, like, courageous journalist. I did it because to have lied to him at that point would have done a huge disservice to the project. Right. I needed him to know, look, I'm not going to bullshit you, man. Let's get this book done, and uh, and you need to respect the fact that I'm honest with you and that's, that, and it worked. He, he kept going after that and, you know, things moved a little bit better.
7: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way?
2: Did anyone in your inner circle know that you were doing this?
8: Uh, well, just a few people.
2: And then once the word got out?
8: You know, actually when the news broke, because obviously I didn't talk about the book before the news broke, and some people were very emotional, like what a disgusting project.
2: Yeah, we, we objected to.
8: You know, how could you, you know? And, and I said, listen, I understand that that's your reaction right now and I'm not going to defend myself, but wait till you see the book. That, that's all I said. But a lot of very smart people thought that I was doing something immoral.
2: Yeah, when I heard about this book, even though I'd never met you before, I felt pretty betrayed by you. And we did everything we could to try to get this book pulled.
8: And I understand that, but listen, in your position... I understand your reaction. and yeah. Also, you You know, the fact is you did not know what was in the book and I could not sit down with you and say, listen, please give me a chance because once you read this book, you, you're, you're gonna understand why on some level the book actually works quite well. So we couldn't have that conversation and we never had that conversation. But if I had lost a brother to that kind of horrific violence and then somebody comes along and is gonna write a book with the person who committed the murder, I would be upset, too. So you, you did the right thing. That was the human response.
2: It wasn't just the content of the book that made us want to prevent the publication. It was also because his people set up a fake company under his children's names so that any money earned from the book would not have to apply to his civil judgment.
8: Look, it's, it's, I just wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to profit from my work. Right. So when the lawyers in New York sent me the contracts... I couldn't tell you this is a fake company. There was a contract with the signatures of the children on it, and the understanding was that the, any profits from the book would go directly to the children. In the end, yeah, it turned out to be some bullshit shell company, and he screwed his own children out of the first payment he got. Yeah. But this is a horrible thing that happened to you and your family, and it's like it's not something that ever goes away and it doesn't you know it doesn't define you as a human being you are a stronger person as a result and uh, leading your life as best you can
2: well all right pablo thank you so much for your time be well all right all right well thanks a lot and i'd like to hear from you You know, Dad, it was certainly a long road, but I do think there was complete justification in going after the killer for a civil judgment.
4: I've gotten enormous joy of knowing that our pursuit caused him grief.
2: I don't think that you and I realized how much we were getting under his skin until the If I Did It book came out.
4: We pounced on that book because when we heard what the title was, If I Did It, we we couldn't even have imagined what was in
3: there.
2: We were under the impression that it was a it was a manual for murder, and he was profiting from it, and he wasn't supposed to be profiting because we had a multi million dollar judgment against him at that point.
4: And just to make people understand, if you have a judgment against somebody, the normal recourse would be go to court and garnish their wages, and you would be getting right money on a month-to-month basis out of their wages. In this case, he didn't have a job. The vast majority of his income was untouchable by law. Right. So we had to chase him every time we saw a potential.
2: When the If I Did It book came out, we attached to what he had earned from that. We knew what we thought he had earned, and then we uncovered that he had formed a shell company in the names of his kids. Oh,
4: to be clear. He had formed this fake company with their help on the premise that they would be getting the money from his advance. They never got one penny. They
2: didn't get anything.
4: He bought a new truck. Mm -hmm. He spent it on a bunch of crap for himself but never gave one penny to his kids.
2: Right, what well, he was also doing is any money that he earned, he was um, repaying his home equity line because he was allowed to by law draw from his home equity line to live off of because that was protected by the homestead laws in Florida. So he would put money back on it and it was untraceable. Like that was all legal right. to do that. So they pulled the book, the killer and his attorneys filed bankruptcy on that company. The judge was like, no, I'm on to you, nice try. I'm taking your asset, which was the book, and we're gonna liquidate the asset.
4: And the court awarded us the rights to the book.
2: And we were ordered by a court to monetize the asset, which meant we had to publish the book. So we took the book, we read it, and we had to very quickly do something with this ridiculous book and so we added a couple chapters to it
4: one was written by dominic dunn uh-huh. and the other was
2: pablo Fenvez.
4: yeah wrote a chapter
2: mm-hmm.
4: and then we wrote and we wrote a, a chapter, chapter. And then- so we had three chapters added to it and then we made the decision to keep the name but change it slightly so in the letter i if i did it we took the word if and made it minuscule, infinitesimal in size, and that got placed in the middle of the word I.
2: The money that we generated from the If I Did It book, we had to give to the bankruptcy court and other people that he owed money to. So he had DirecTV he owed money to, he had attorneys. I mean, we were working to pay off his debt. Like, it was so fucked up. The day that we Release that book. That was the day that he broke into the hotel room in Las Vegas and stole his shit back, yeah, quote unquote, to keep it from the Goldmans. We took away the one thing that he thought was going to be his meal ticket, which is which was if I did it. We took away his voice. We turned it around on him. We get a lot of crap for doing that because I think that people think that you and I are sitting on piles and piles and piles Millions and piles of, of money. money. The day that our civil verdict was rendered, the 12 jurors unanimously did the judgment amount for the Brown family and us, and it was $33.5 million or whatever.
4: Total $33.5 million. Between our two
2: families. And we've only collected less than 1% of that.
4: What I discovered at the tail end was that it was a piece of paper. A piece of paper that was only worth... The ink. Ink that was on it and the value (laughs) of the paper. Yeah. A civil judgment was 100% yours to attempt to Collect. collect. The court had nothing to do with helping you collect on the judgment. The new burden was how do you get him to pay it? He understood all of that because we learned later that all the way through the civil trial, he and his attorneys were squirreling away all his assets mm-hmm. to make certain that he never paid a penny of it.
2: There are lots of things that we are not able to go after because the law does not provide right. that. So his, like his pension and his, you know, his that retirement. That was his big
4: source of income.
2: So when people turn around and, and they say, well, you got $33.5 million. I'm like, no, no, we got a piece of paper. He walked away, gotten his SUV with his hired driver and his blacked out tinted windows and and went and had and cookie went dough had ice cream. cookie dough ice cream. He has truly gotten away
4: gotten away with it a second a time. second
2: time. on the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. He grabbed Nicole, he threw her up against the wall, and he started screaming.
5: Police continue to investigate the brutal slaying of Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole Simpson, was being battered and terrorized by the former NFL football star.
2: You were one of her closest friends. Do you remember how you were told about what happened to Nicole?
8: Chris Jenner called me just panicked. She told me to run over there right now. Something's wrong, something's wrong.
0: He looked like a different person, and that's what Nicole had always said when he gets angry.
8: There was no way to make sense of any of it. The finality of not being able to see those people again was tough to reconcile.
2: Can't wait for the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson? Listen to Episode 9 right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's wo Dery.com/plus to hear episode nine of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting podcast? Please follow us at @ConfrontingPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting OJ Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass, along with executive producers, Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer Carrie Hartman, produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan, story producer, Tony Davis, Audio editing done by lead editor Matt Delvecchio and editor Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. Featured in this episode
0: were excerpts from the book If I Did It, published by Fred and Kim Goldman and Beaufort Books, New York. Some material was edited for time.
10: Answers for Claudia, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores a 15-year-old mystery. The Disappearance of Claudia Lawrence on March the 18th, 2009. Claudia was a seemingly happy 35-year-old when she vanished without a trace. There was no crime scene, no CCTV of Claudia leaving her home, and no body found. She simply finished her shift, phoned her mum for a chat, and was never seen again. Claudia's mum, Joan, is now 80 years old, and she thinks this might be her last chance to find answers. I'm journalist Tom McDermott, and when I offer to help Joan... I had no idea what was in store. In Answers for Claudia, I speak to the people who knew Claudia, interview past suspects, and investigate the rumours and theories that surround this case. Why are the residents of the village Claudia lived in still so frightened? And what can we find out about the people who were closest to Claudia? You can binge Answers for Claudia exclusively on Wondery+. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.